119, 105 to 112. <clears throat> we're going to probably finish Psalm 119 this summer. Uh, so we're... Well, I'm just being honest. I thought that was encouraging to you. Yeah. All right. Psalm 119, and we're looking at 105 to 112. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, um, there's a lot of verses in this psalm. Every one of them revolves around the value of your word for us. Every one of them upholds uh, the majesty and the grace and the power of the word of God. And I just pray that you would help us not to grow weary of looking at the way we should relate to your word and what it is for, and that we would take it to heart. And obviously, the psalmist that you inspired to write all this uh, was deeply in love with the word of God. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, in Romans 1.16, that uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The good news message is very powerful. Order, in order to change lives, people must relate well to the good news gospel message. So thank you for your word. Help us to be in love with it as much as our psalmist is. And I ask that that would be our choice. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, now I told you to turn there, but I want to start in one of the temptation uh, narratives in Matthew chapter 4. So you can keep your place there in Psalm 119. But uh, if we want to know about the temptations of Christ in the wilderness, uh, somebody mentions Matthew 4 or Luke 4, we know we're headed in that area. And I would like to read verses 1 through 11. What I want you to concentrate on is the content of the temptation Satan gives and what Jesus does to deal with the temptation. <clears throat> Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had, had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter, all right, so, so far in this we're going to learn that uh, Satan's name is Satan, the, and the, called the devil and the tempter. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship Yahweh your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels, so elect angels of God, came and began to minister to him. Uh, interesting how one of the things was that the angels will catch you if you just throw yourself down and he said, you don't put the Lord your God to the test, and then God sends angels at just the right time, uh, not a part of those temptations, to take care of the physical needs of Jesus, who had just spent 40 days and 40 nights in fasting. All right, let's go back then, uh, so we're ready to go in Psalm 119. But as we looked at the Matthew passage, uh, here is Jesus 
the God-man of the universe, being afflicted by the most powerful evil being in the universe. Uh, one of the things that we have going for us that Jesus didn't have going for him is that there, Satan is not going to mess personally with any of us. Satan is not going to come and tempt us. We're not that important. But his demons, his evil spirits, uh, which are numerous, they will come and they will, they will bother us. And they work for Satan. But Satan himself will never do that. He's busy with kings and princes and, and rulers of the world and rulers of his kingdom. But Satan is personally taking the lead in, in trying to destroy Jesus. Right? So that means that Jesus is an extremely important individual and Satan knows it. Anyway, he was afflicted by this most powerful of, of cherub angels because uh, Satan was a cherub class angel. And Satan is trying to get Jesus to deny the written word of God and take his position as king of the earth, which is what he came for, but by means of worshiping Satan instead of following God and his meticulous plan that he had for Jesus. Notice what, Je what saves Jesus from the temptation in the spiritual battle. What saved Jesus was that he clung to the word of God and he used the word of God and he used it in the right context and he didn't take it out of context and when challenged with one scripture that seemed to say he could do one thing he, he went and he brought in another scripture that gave that some balance and some real understanding and he wasn't tricked. It is the word of God that saved Jesus on that day. It is the word of God that saves us on any day. The main goal of the wicked and the spiritually immature is to get you and me to stop following the word of God. That's how Satan got into the human race in the first place. Uh, Eve was, was told by God not to eat a certain fruit or they would die. And Satan comes along and said, really? Is that what he said? You will, you will surely not die. In other words, God lied to you. And so Satan is always perverting the word of God. Therefore, we need to know the Word of God. We need to understand the Word of God. We need to be able to discern what is being said. So I would like us to ask tonight, um, we are, are all capable of making a decision. What is my commitment to obey the Word of God? What is my relationship with the Word of God? What is it that I think about the Word of God? And if you were to look at my life and what I do, uh, do you ever find me studying the Word of God? Do you ever find me memorizing the Word of God? Do you ever find me uh, in doing what the Word of God says? That's going to tip you off as to just how important the Word of God is. Uh, lots of uh, families don't read the Bible together. Lots of families don't pray together. And then they come to church and act like that's important to them. Well, it really isn't if we, if we don't really do what we say. Well, let's look at Psalm 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my foot, the Hebrew text literally says, and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it. In other words, uh, he is resolved with what he swore that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Yahweh, according to your word. All right, so the word of God has a reviving power in us when we're being afflicted. Oh, accept the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Yahweh, and teach me your ordinances. So this part of the psalm is very heavy on the ordinances of God. My life is continually, notice, in my hand. We think, wow, that's strange. Wouldn't you say my life is continually in God's hands? Well, that is true as well, but notice he says, my life is continually in my hands. We'll see what that means in, in a little bit. Yet I do not forget your law. 
The wicked have laid a snare for me. Now, he never does really tell us the, the details of what's happening or what's going on, but we just know that he's being afflicted by some uh, wicked and evil people. They've laid a snare for me. They want to trap him. Yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. So what kept him out of the snare, what kept him out of the trap, was the fact that he was following the word of God that he knew. I have, an inherit, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. And I think he means the end of his own life, however long God lets him stay. All right, let's look at 105 uh, and 106. The spiritual, I'm talking about those who know God, walk with God, and love God, and love his word. The spiritual and physical guide for life is the word of God, which we must determine to obey. So there's a direct connection between a spiritual person and where we get our spiritual food, and that is the word of God. A spiritual person eats on the, on the nourishment of the word of God. And it's a physical guide for life. It, it helps us uh, make decisions emotionally and physically and spiritually. In verse 105, this is one of these uh, scriptures that many of us had drilled into our heads when, when we were little children growing up in a church. Our teachers hoped that it would get to our hearts. They knew they could get it into our mind, but could they get it into our hearts? That's what they hoped for. I think I was discussing, Vicki, was that with you discussing this week that what our vacation Bible schools used to be like when we were kids? Yeah, pretty boring compared to what I saw here this week, you know. Uh, I remember we were going to a Baptist church near our home. My mom found every vacation Bible school she could in the summer just to keep us kids out of trouble while she's at work, you know. And uh, I don't think she ever sent us to a church we shouldn't have been at. But anyway, uh, you walk in, and uh, they had a decorated table to sign in on. You know, it had a little skirt around the table. And, and then you walked into the missionary room, and there was, a, there was a, you know, a picture of the missionary. And usually they had, had a real missionary there to talk to us about the mission time. And then you went to Bible time, and that was just another room. And then you went to singing time, and that was in the sanctuary. No decorations, no goodies, no treats, no nothing. Uh, you just went, and that's what your day was. I, I looked at what we had today, and I wow, these kids don't know what, what uh, is happening for them. Uh, but you still hope you, you get the same message across. That's what it's about. And our teachers hope that that would get into our heart, that we would really believe this is going to be the light of my life's pathway, just like Jackson said the life pathway, and I'm going to follow that, and I'm going to be successful as God counts success. When I read this as a little boy, I used to think of a person trying to walk uh, a path in pitch darkness, holding a lantern in front of him, and uh, that lantern was the lantern of God. The picture in the text is that we live and move every day in a world of spiritual darkness. Even though the lights are on, the world is spiritually dark. And it's that that we need to be able to uh, maneuver through uh, with the light of God. There are dangers everywhere, and they lurk in the dark. I was watching a program today that talked about how even the secular world is starting to think there is something wrong in our world. There is something that isn't right, and we might be very near the end. And these are people that don't know God, or secularism uh, doesn't know God. And they said, this is a real chance for us to get the word of God out and try to win people for Christ. They're, they're hungry to know what's going to happen. And so we're in a good position there. There are those who want to cause us to stray from the path of God. People in your life, you're going to run into people that are always trying to get you to come off the pathway with them. Just, just a little bit. It won't hurt. It won't be a problem. Just, just a little bit. 
And uh, Satan uses them to tempt us to get on the wrong path. But if we keep the light in front of us, we can see, no, that, that's a pretty dangerous path. I'm not going down that. And we make the right decision. Uh, they, caught, they use traps to get us caught off the path. And we must confront sinfulness and perhaps even our own death there if we take that path. So I want you to notice that as we're looking at this, uh, the word is trying to keep us from being trapped by people who will try to trap us so that we will be like them. The world wants us to be uh, like them, which is without God, without direction in life, just about having fun, just about enjoying life and making the most out of it that you can. In this dark world of sin and evil, God has given us spiritual insight about how to navigate around these traps and to keep us from being snared. Uh, I watch where I'm stepping and I keep track of the path with the light that God provided for me. Uh, if there's a fork in the road, I'm going to take the, uh, the well-worn path of God and stay on it. Uh, I will stay on the smooth road ahead, uh, like uh, trying to get through a pasture at night. The psalmist in 106 uh, makes an emphatic statement about his obedience to God's word by using the word sworn or confirm. He has resolved. So he is very serious about this. I have sworn like an oath. And I, will, I am resolved. I will confirm it. All right? And what he has done is that he's going to keep the righteous ordinances of God. He says, I swore to you, O God, I'm going to do what your Bible tells me to do. The impact of what he is saying is that he has solemnly sworn to keep the righteous ordinances of God. There's no unrighteous ordinances of God. But he sees that out of all the wisdom of the world and all, all the sages in the world and all those who offer different religions, that God is the one who has righteous ordinances. No one else does. Please note his understanding of the world. It is word, a word of God. Excuse me. It is righteousness. All other ways are not. Dr. Ross said here, it is a fundamental part of a believer's life to make a binding commitment to obey the Lord. Have you ever done that? Have you ever made a commitment to God and you said to him, Lord, whatever you say, I'm going to do. Whatever is in your word, I'm going to keep it. And I swear to do that. I don't know how many people have done that. So I am a believer. That means I should have made that commitment. So the issue is, have I? It is folly to set your lantern down and follow the side road into darkness. And it's kind of easy because you left your lantern there to find out where you really went off the path where you went wrong. Verses 107 to 110. Even though we are afflicted because the word brings joy to us, we will not stop obeying God and what he said. All right, so we're, we're looking uh, now on these verses. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Yahweh, according to your word. O accept the free will offering of my mouth, O Yahweh, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, Yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your presence. It's amazing. The Bible is full of stories about the wicked laying a trap for the righteous. Look what happened to Joseph. Look what happened to Daniel. Uh, these, this group of wise men in Babylon get together and they just decide we've got to destroy Daniel. We don't want him to be the head guy. And let's figure out a way to trap him. And they said, let's trap him in the things of his God because he won't give those up. And sure enough, he was trapped. But God freed him from the, from the lion's den. So though in verse 107 he doesn't tell us the particulars of the affliction, 
he is undergoing. We know that there are unbelievers that are causing him trouble, trying to trap him. And in that affliction, he's asking God to revive him. It gets old being under affliction. It gets, it gets wearying, and it's, it's troublesome. And God's word can revive us by giving us hope and confidence that God is in control. In that affliction, he's asking God, restore me, revive me, give me strength. The word for revive is a word that means to restore one's life. And it's like asking God to give you back your life uh, under affliction. God has made promises to care for us, and the word is where those promises are given to us, and it's good to know them. We must not forget, God doesn't make us do the right thing. We mentioned that this morning. It must be our decision to stay on the path. God doesn't make you stay on the path. You must decide to be obedient to his word. There is an entirely different set of consequences for those who choose to snuff out the light of the lamp and take their chances on the road without God. Not a smart thing to do. In verse 108, he offers a free will offering, and that's, that's a praise. Praise is an offering to God. Praise and talking about how good he is and what he has done is an offering to God. That sacrifice will include uh, also in Israel as a free will offering. It would include a real offering, a physical offering of an animal along with it. So he calls it a sacrifice, but it is a sacrifice even if the animal isn't present. If God will accept his sacrifice, he knows he'll be blessed. Note especially that he is not just asking for rescue from the affliction, he also desires to know God's word more. There's no time in our life that we will reach a point where we know God's word as much as we need to know it. <laughs> uh, we, we study it till, until we're dead. Howard Hendricks used to tell of a lady in her 80s that was still a youth worker in their church and doing everything she could uh, to move forward, and uh, she used to ask Dr. Hendricks, what verse are you working on this week? And he was always uh, about the business of memorization, and she said, well, I just memorized this chapter or that chapter. She just kept going. God's word is what gives us direction and safety in living this life. God's word does flash a red light when we're in danger, when there's trouble on the road. Can you know too much of God's word? Well, I had a man tell me once that he didn't want to know the Bible because then he'd find out that there were some fun things that he likes to do that God would take away. So he didn't want to know what the word of God said. He had no idea that he wasn't living life. He had no idea that he really wasn't experiencing fun. Uh, the best life you can live is with God. The devil had blinders on his eyes. This is verse 109. Here the psalmist talks about the choices he's made in his life. His number one choice tells us what he means by taking his life in his hands. So I want you to think about that. Your life is in your hands. You know what makes it that way? Because you're the one making the decisions. God doesn't make you make a bad decision. He doesn't make you make a good decision. Your life and which direction it goes and whether you use the light of God's word, you use the lamp or the flashlight of God's word, it's your decision. You can choose to ignore God. You can choose to not do what God says. You can choose uh, to, to just walk away from God. You took your life in your own hands. You made your own choice. Uh, but we have the, the right also to choose to obey God in this present life. We have set ourselves up as a target for the wicked when we choose against it. Evil people don't understand our desire for righteous living. 1 Peter 4.4 4 tells us that they will not understand that you will not run with them into their debauchery. Choosing to obey God in a godless society, which is where we are at, causes us to be attacked by people who don't appreciate us 
calling into question their lifestyle. Just by you living a different lifestyle, uh, friends that don't know Jesus uh, are being judged, they think, because you're living in a different way than they are, and they don't like it. Despite the pressure to do otherwise, he does not forget the law of God, and he says, my life is in my hands, and since it is, I'm going to choose God's way. By the way, that puts your life in his hands in a greater way. To forget means, means knowing about what he should do, but refusing to do it. He says, I'm not going to forget it. I'm going to bring those things to mind. I'm going to do it. When we choose to follow God, we take our life in our own hands by choice, trusting that God will keep his word and he will deliver us when we need him to. In, in chapter uh, 119, 110, here we learn that the wicked have afflicted him by setting a trap for him. The word for trap is literally a bird trap, one that springs up and grabs a person unaware. And it seems the trap involves getting the believer to give up his conviction to obey God and fall into sin. I don't know how many uh, young people I've worked with that their friends come along and they're enticing them. Uh, just come with us. It'll be okay. It'll be, it'll be fun. You need to know what fun is, so come with us. And they give in to that. And they think, well, it is going to be more fun because they do those things and God doesn't hurt them. God doesn't punish them. So why can't I do them and have fun? God doesn't care. And Satan's got them. They're in the trap. The, the trap was sprung. Are unbelievers trying to trap people into doing what is unbiblical? Absolutely they are. The answer is yes, they are. They're doing it constantly. Even immature believers are trying to get others to disobey God. This was Satan's tactic with Jesus in the wilderness. Satan was playing his favorite game, and the name of that game is, Has God Really Said? Has God Really Said? When Satan comes to you and he questions what God has said, are you going to know what the right answer is? Are you going to know what God really does say? And if he said what Satan is saying, he said. Eve didn't do that. Jesus was rescued by sticking to his resolve to obey the word of God. Do you see how spiritual truth guide, guided Jesus in the right path in, the, in that Matthew 4 passage? That is why the psalmist asked for God to teach him more. The more I know, the better at handling life's issues I will be. And then finally in 111 and 112, we must turn our hearts to God's word because his word lasts forever. In other words, the teachings of the compassionate Buddha, they will fade away. They will be no more. Upanishads, they will fade away. They will be no more. All right? Uh, all these other religions, the word will not last forever. It will be destroyed, but God's word will. And his word brings us true joy in life when we obey it. The others will bring death. In verse 111, the psalmist owns <clears throat> the statutes of God as an inheritance. The word of God was handed down to him not only by his human father, but by his father in heaven. That inheritance can never be taken away from him. The word of God will not pass away. He holds on to it because it brings joy to him. It brings a level path, a level road, a straight road in his life. And he chooses that because his life was in his own hands because God gave him the ability to choose. And he said, young man, what do you choose? He says, I choose you. I choose the way of the Lord. How much joy does the word God, of God bring your heart and my heart? When multitudes of humans are not uh, going to enter the joy of eternity with Jesus, I marvel at what he has given me and you for eternity. I'm ecstatic about that. I'd like others to have it. In the final verse, he has stretched out, this psalmist says, bent down and turned toward doing the word of God. In other words, he's putting effort into it. 
He does not ever anticipate a time when he will not be doing that with the word. He has shown already that the affliction of his life has been able to be derailed uh, by his commitment to God, and it can't derail his commitment to God. And that's the issue. What would it take to get you to stop obeying Jesus? What would it take? How much would it take to get you to stop obeying Jesus? I have witnessed at times in my own life, and I have seen in the lives of others, it doesn't seem to take much to derail us. I want to read an illustration of a man who has committed his life to something far less important than following Jesus, far less uh, valuable than following Jesus. And I don't know if I'm saying this, last, this guy's last name right, but Mark Schlethereth, anybody heard of that guy? He's a commentator for Fox Sports. Is that about right? Schlereth, I like that. Let's go with that. Anyway, uh, he played in the NFL for 12 seasons and is a football analyst for Fox Sports. And during a panel discussion on Fox's uh, program called First Things First, the host asked him, how remarkable is Tom Brady's run? He means his run in football, his, his life in football. And this is what he answered, and I'm quoting except for this, uh, I'll tell you when. He says, it's incredible. And then added in here is Brady is not, so we know he's talking about Brady. Brady is not sated by success. In other words, he's not satisfied and says it's enough uh, you know, by his first three or four Super Bowl rings. All right? So it's incredible. Brady is not sated by success. I think that's the most impressive thing to me about Brady, to continue to prepare, to continue to grind. Brady's quote is, now he's quoting Brady, if you want to beat me, you better be ready to lose your life because I've already given up mine. Now we're talking about football, right? Brady's former backup quarterback said, the thing I learned most from Tom Brady is playing quarterback is not a job, it's a lifestyle. And you've got to be willing to commit your life to it and to be able to commit your life to playing the game uh, the way he has played it and to have that much passion for it without ever being sated by it. He wakes up. And it's all about, what am I going to do today to be a be the best quarterback I can be for the organization? That means diet, that means exercise, that means hydration, and Sundays aren't the problem. It's Monday through Saturday, that's the problem. You get to a point somewhere in your career where you say, I don't want to prepare anymore. If I could just show up on Sunday, that would be great, but I don't want to go through the grind, the grind of preparing to get to Sunday. He still eats that grind for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's one of the most amazing things I have ever witnessed. Wouldn't it be nice to have people say that about us in 